What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 95 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, is we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, we are in December of 2020. Boy, you never thought you never thought December would get here on the calendar, would you? But we have a great episode in store today and even our next one as we wrap up this crazy year. We wrap up with two great leaders. Today, you get to hear the story behind the person that you may know. She's featured in so many movies and TV shows, Nancy Grace. Nancy made her name as assistant district attorney in Atlanta as she went 100-0 in her cases, then went to court TV to be on with Johnny Cochran, the legendary Johnny Cochran from the O.J. Simpson trial, and her career took off. She was on court TV. She has been on HLN for years and years with the Nancy Grace Show. She has written the Haley Dean Mysteries, New York Times bestsellers. They've been turned into Hallmark movies. She has her show Injustice on the Oxygen Network. She has her show on Sirius XM Radio, Crime Online Podcast as well, and on Fox Nation. What she has accomplished is absolutely amazing, but it pales in comparison to the story of a young lady from Macon, Georgia, who through tragedy found her purpose and found her calling. You may thought you know you have known Nancy, but until this time, you're going to learn a lot about what makes her the person that she is. So I am incredibly excited for you to pull up a chair and you to take some good notes on a, a pad or thumb them into your phone as we sit down with Nancy Grace. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for being a guest on Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. You know, Mike, I'm so happy to be here, and I'm really awe and awe to be here because you've had so many great Christians on with you, and uh, I'm just honored to be invited. Thank you. You know, Nancy, we're, we're in 2020. You're a best-selling author a former prosecutor, a TV host, a podcaster. You've been on Dancing with the Stars, a law professor, executive producer of Hallmark movies, a legal analyst, and a wife, and a mom. When you were a little girl growing up in Macon, Georgia, did any of that seem possible? Well, let me eject at the very beginning right now, because I didn't really grow up in Macon, we were so far out in the country, it was rural Bibb County. Now, wow. although our mailing address did say Macon, and that's really important. We grew up on a red dirt road where uh, there was a tree growing up in the middle of the road right in front of our house. <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather built the house for my mom, my grandfather, and my uncle. 
And they dug the well in the backyard. And sometimes the water would be a little bit red, but it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in unincorporated Bibb County, and we were so far out that the bookmobile would come out to the underprivileged children and the rural children, so we would have access to books. Now, what I remember most about the bookmobile, Mike, is that I had never experienced air conditioning before. And wow. I would go get in the bookmobile with the lady librarian and stay in there until they'd finally say, okay, Nancy, you get your books. You have to go now because we're going back to the library downtown because it would be 5 o'clock. And I would have sat there in the air condition, luxuriating, reading books. <laughs> that is crazy. That's how far out. Yeah, yeah. So, gosh, when you say all that stuff about um, – former prosecutor and this and that it sounds like somebody else because i don't think of myself that way at all as you well know (laughs) how do you how do you think of yourself nancy how do you think of you wow honestly i don't really think about myself Mm -hmm. um let's see i wake up in the morning get ready to go to the studio long enough to put my hair back in a bun and um go and my my day is so full of thinking about taking care of the twins and the the crime victims I'm talking to and the next case and the next case and the next case. I guess nothing has really changed since I was a prosecutor. Mm. Uh, my mind is so um, preoccupied with all of that. I don't really think about me mm. so much. That's so good. When And when you were growing up, so many people go, you know, that's always what I knew I was going to do. Your dream <laughs> wasn't to be a prosecutor. You wanted to go a whole different route, didn't you? Yes. When I was little, little, I wanted to write books and I wanted to, I don't even know what I was thinking. I wanted to travel the world in a uh, an RV with pulling a horse trailer with my horse with me. Of course, we couldn't afford a horse, but in my dreams, we had one. And that's what I wanted to do. And I guess that sowed the seeds of studying Shakespearean literature. Mm. My plan was to be a Shakespearean literature professor at university level. And that's really all I wanted to do. Oh, my God. Mike, did I ever tell you that I said, Mom, what should I major in in college? And she said, why don't you major in chemistry and be a pharmacist because you'll always have a job. I'm like, "Uh, okay. And I hadn't even had chemistry in high school. And in the first chemistry lab, I smelled all of the chemicals and passed out. I passed out. I came to on the chemistry floor, and in my head I was hearing that. I heard that in my head. So chemistry was not for me. That did not work out. Very quickly, I said, why don't I just try something I love, which is English, and that is how I found William Shakespeare. That is crazy. (laughs) And then you went through an incredible experience where all that shifted. You were engaged. Walk everybody through that because that was a a real apex moment for you, wasn't it? I don't know that I would call it an incredible experience, but I would call it life changing in the sense of when lightning strikes and splits a tree in half and test house and catches the forest on fire. I think I'd compare it to something like that. I was um, 
well, okay, I hadn't thought beyond high school. And I said, oh, okay, so everybody's going to college. And I asked my best friend, who was a guy, uh, where are you going? And he said, Valdosta. I'm like, oh, okay. I filled out my application with a pencil. Wow. And sent it in. That's how little, how unsophisticated I was. And um, got in. I went to Valdosta. And one day, I saw a guy walking across campus. I literally, I remember the moment stopped in my tracks. And I thought, oh, that's the most handsome guy I've ever seen in my life. And I immediately thought, you know, I don't know what this says to girls all over the world, but I thought, wow, he'd never be interested in somebody like me. I'm not nearly pretty enough for him to be interested in me. Anyway, it took me about a month to break him and his girlfriend up and, and, you know, start dating him. We got engaged and we planned our wedding a month before, month or so before our wedding, Keith was murdered. Mm. He was shot. Uh, he, he was majoring in geology and he had to transfer to a bigger school to finish his degrees on baseball scholarship. And over that summer, he had a job working on a construction crew. And he was out in a very rural area building, I, I don't know what. And a guy that had been fired from the crew a week before Keith started showed up at the construction site and opened fire and murdered Keith. I remember I was coming out of a statistics exam, and I still remember, it's funny, the oddest thing stayed in your mind, how bright and sunny and beautiful it was when I came out of that dark math building, and I was walking to the my job, I worked in the library at Mercer University, and I stopped at the student center to call them and tell them I was walking as fast as I could, but I was going to be about 15 minutes late. And they told me to call Keith's sister, and I knew immediately that Keith was gone. Mm. Um, I called from a payphone and learned that he was, in fact, had been killed. I didn't know what had happened. I got to my brother, we drove to our home, and nobody was there. We passed our church, our little Methodist church, and there was a car there, and I went in. Our pastor was there. I told him, and I couldn't believe that Keith was really gone, and even now it's hard for me to say dead. And he was on the phone, and I saw my Bernstein funeral home upside down across his desk and then I knew that's when I knew for sure that Keith was dead mm, mm. I dropped out of school and I, I, did, I didn't know what I was going to do and I went to Philadelphia to stay with my sister I suddenly got the idea to go back to school to law school and represent crime victims mm. and that is how I ended up in law school when you felt that and i and i think it's a call nancy i really do i think that what you experienced on the back side of that is what we experience in ministry and people that get into teaching i think the people that are that are great at what they do it's a call when you experience that call to help crime victims what began to happen in you that you would have never dreamed because you probably would have said i'm the least cut out person to be alone. Oh, my stars. Yeah. Can I tell you something? <laughs> when I went to law school, all the way through school, 
all the way through law school, I would never raise my hand. Mm. I would never say a word, ever. Um, all the way back, even elementary, even kindergarten, I would never say a word. It was only when I tried my first jury trial. It was a shoplifting case, and P.S., the guy didn't steal anything, Mike. It was an attempted shoplifting case. I begged the jury, begged for a conviction, and I got him on attempted shoplifting. I walked out of the courtroom, and I remember outside the courthouse, I felt like a bird out of a cage mm. because I finally found a voice. I, it was like something else took over. I did not like to speak out. I did not ever want to be the center of attention at all. But everything changed when I began representing crime victims. And even in my personal life, I mean, when I'm with you and our family, your family, I guess I'm different. But typically, outside the courtroom or outside talking about crime, I much prefer to stay in the background. And I don't like talking about myself mm. ever. That's so interesting. And I love that phrase you use, Nancy, I found my voice. So when you began to represent crime victims, what do you think was that voice you found? What was it that you felt like God began to do in you that you never dreamed? Mike, just talking to you right now, I'm getting a flood of memories of all the crime victims and their families that I worked with. Oh, gosh. Um, just from little girls, three years old, with a hundred barrettes in their hair that had been molested, to Miss Leola, her son was shot dead over a ten-dollar debt. I remember going her beautiful living room; everything was white, and she had everything covered in plastic, and she had little plastic paths walkway to her sofa and you could sit down on the plastic covered sofa and go, <laughs> I remember I sat there and she's such a strong Christian and we would talk and talk and talk and she came to her son's murder trial and she sat on the front row and she knitted and every time whether it was a medical examiner showing autopsy photos or crime scene photos or grisly testimony I would look back at her because I didn't want to hurt her feelings and she would just be knitting and she'd look up at mm. me and smile and I'd keep going and keep going and we sat there and held hands until the verdict came down I mean just a flood of murder victims and you know what I found out Mike um, I don't know if I'm being responsive to your question but I found out years into it that with every crime victim or family, I'd feel like I put a little Band-Aid on them, and I'd walk mm -hmm. out of the courtroom and go, okay, next. I wasn't putting a Band-Aid on them. I was putting the Band-Aid on me. Wow. And I don't believe that if God had not led me to that, that I would have ever been able to go on. It might, I didn't really go on. It's like you breaking your arm and you never get it set, and you never get it fixed, but somehow you learn to make a pancake. You may not flip it up in the air and catch it with a spatula. You may just barely turn it over in the pan, but you manage to do it. And there were times 
I would have to pull over on the side of the road and just cry. I remember one time I was prosecuting a case. It was a bench trial. And there was about a 23-month-old little girl that had been beaten into a coma by an abusive father. And because of privacy laws, I didn't get the medical files until we were in trial. I was going forward with the case proving the beating. And in the trial, I was thumbing through the medical files that I just received, and I saw where the little girl had been sexually abused, 23 months old. When I left the courtroom that day, I had to pull the car over about a block from the courthouse, and it was pouring rain, and I just cried and cried to think what this child had been through. And when I look back on all those cases, it feels like somebody else comes inside of me as I argue a case or or argue the law or stand before the Georgia Supreme Court or the Georgia Court of Appeals or a judge with a big frown on their face and let it rip because that is not the little girl who would not raise her hand in class. So I don't know what happens, but it's nothing peculiar to me. I feel very blessed. Well, you know, and I I love even as you trace back through scripture, nothing great ever happened that didn't begin with a burden. And I think what's so interesting about your story, Nancy, is crime victims weren't a job. They were a burden. And 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 you owned it. And that's why you feel it so deep. And in the, in the crazy part, for those that don't know your story, you weren't prosecuting in rural South Georgia at the other end of your dirt road. That little girl from a tree in the middle of the dirt road went in. And if you don't know where Macon is, if you live outside Macon, that's not good. All right. And so Macon's not the biggest city. And now you're in Fulton County. You're in the state capital of Georgia. Did you feel sometimes that you might be in the wrong place? Or did you go, you know what, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be? What would you say? Well, number one, let me correct you, because I don't believe anybody in Macon or Bibb County thinks that's such a horrible place to be. In <laughs> it's fact, not horrible. It's when small. I, when, I, when I look back, uh, I had a very idyllic childhood. I mean, yeah. there was nothing but soybean fields and pine trees as far as I could see. We could ride our bikes after school as far and as long as yeah. we wanted to and just come home when the the chime in the church steeple rang. God will take care of you, and we will come home. So that's a pretty good way to grow up. Yep. I mean, we didn't know that we, you know, were, were dirt poor. It was, we're all in the same boat. Nobody knew. But yep. I never questioned where I was. I never mm. looked back uh, or looked forward because I got an idea, Mike, Mike Lynch, and it is I don't have a plan, but God mm. does. And when you make a plan, but people say, oh, where do you want to be five years from now? I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow, but mm. I know this. God knows. That's right. And when I talk about a plan, somewhere there's an angel laughing because there's no way I would <laughs> ever have ended up in what was then one of the murder capitals of our country. That's right. That's All right. I wanted was to prosecute crime and a lot of it. And at that time, Atlanta rivaled the biggest cities in the country for crime. It still does, by the way, per capita. I mean, my every week we would have 150 new felonies to deal with. <sighs> Me, alone in my courtroom the courtroom I was assigned to, to handle the state's business. And I never thought about, am I in the right place? 
I knew what I had to do. I never questioned it, and I did it with all my heart and still do as best as I can. And, I, and, and, and that's what made you so special. And that's why I think that the nation really, you know, back at the end of your time there in Fulton County, everybody saw that. I, I'd love to ask you this question, Nancy. What, what is it about prosecutors? So we, we see things on television. What are things about the folks that work in DA's offices all over the country? Every size city. Well, we always get maligned. And mm. I'll tell you why I think that is. The state is under a death, an ethical duty, usually, not to speak about the case. And that's what my boss, the longest-serving elected district attorney in the country at that time, I think it was 37 years, wow. Mr. Slayton, would tell us when approached by the press during a trial, don't speak. And I had a stock answer if it was during the trial I believe the jury will hear the evidence and return a true verdict. That's what I would typically say. The defense, however, is not bound by those same ethical duties, and they can talk about, oh, how bad the prosecution is, and the cops planted the evidence, it was all a big conspiracy, and somebody else could have done this, blah, blah, blah. You know what? I get it. They're doing all they can for their client. I don't agree with it, but I understand what's happening. And so that's the narrative you often hear about during trials because the prosecution can't speak. So you don't hear that side. Yep. So we get we get a beating. We take a beating. For the most part, uh, public servants make practically nothing. When I was prosecuting, I had two night jobs, one teaching business law, at Georgia State undergrad, and one teaching in the trial strategy and technique program at Georgia State Law School to make my house note and my car note. Mm. So it was a, a dedication to put the bad guys away. And for that one moment when the jury said guilty, I knew for that moment I did something good. Mm. I put one guy away one at a time and made the streets safer for that moment. And it felt good. That is so good. That is so good. And if I remember correctly, Nancy, you, you ended up a hundred and Oh, correct. In Fulton County. Is that correct? Hold on. Hold on. Wait a minute. Knock on wood. Yes. At trial, at trial, a hundred to zero, over a hundred to zero. Um, And I'm not bragging. I'll tell you why, because just like my program now and through all the years, there's a whole control room full of people making that happen. That's right. There was my longtime investigator that I patterned Fincher after in the Hallmark movies and in all of my books. Haley Dean has an investigator. That was my investigator, Ernest. Um, there were police. There were witnesses. There were crime lab scientists and technicians. It wasn't me. It was a whole team of mm. people that got those true verdicts. And those are the ones that I have a record of. I have many, many other cases that I don't even have a record of, uh, whether it be, you know, three or four cases tried in one week. Yes, it happened. Uh, this is how it worked, Mike. I would lead off a trial week with my biggest case that I had prepared. If that fell through, i.e. pled out. I would have to have it backed up by two or three other cases. 
I would send one jury out to deliberate and bring in another panel of 60 to strike a new jury immediately. And don't give me the credit. It was my judge, Judge Luther Alverson. He was the oldest serving judge in the in the entire circuit. And he was so old that he was grandfathered in. He was not under mandatory retirement. And he was dead set on showing the other judges that he could keep the most trials going. So we had to go on trial every other week to keep Judge Alverson happy. That's why I racked up so many trials. Unbelievable. I did not know that. That's the way it happened. Yep. Wow. And then you transition from from Atlanta to New York to go on court TV. I don't know that I would call it transition, Mike Lynch, because <laughs> this is what happened. I got wind that the elected DA, Mr. Slate, was retiring. I oh my goodness. And I actually started crying. And I would never do that at the courthouse. In fact, nobody even knew about my fiance being killed. I kept that a secret. Um, I didn't want defense attorneys to use it against me somehow in court. Um, I went down to Mr. Slayton in tears and said, is this true? I can't believe it. He told me yes. Well, what was I going to do? Go be a defense attorney? No way in H-E-double-L. So I had been working as a volunteer at the Better Women's Center. I thought, well, maybe they can use a lawyer. Well, they didn't have enough money to pay a lawyer. Well, I had been offered a job at Court TV to do a show with Johnny Cochran, and I had turned it down. When I found out Slate was retiring, I called him back and said, hey, you know that show? I'll do it. I moved to New York with curling iron, two shift road boxes of clothes, and $300 in my savings account, thinking, what could go wrong? <laughs> That's <laughs> what happened. That's, That's, trans- right. That's a transition you're talking about right, th- right there. Golly. What was that experience like? So you, you got Johnny Cochran at the height of his career coming off the OJ trial. What was that experience like with him? Oh, my goodness. Well, nobody liked me arguing with Johnny because, you know, he was the older senior statesman in the legal community. And here I was. I'd hardly let him get a sentence out. would just tear him up. He was actually very charming. And I, I really got to know him and his beautiful wife and their family. They were really wonderful. Johnny was very charming. I learned a lot from him about how to charm a jury. I had always just run straight at the jury, you know, telling this is this is what happened. You've got to give me this verdict. This is why, blah, blah, blah. He was much more of a smooth operator than me, much, much more. Um he was the toast of the town, moving from L.A. to New York. I knew nobody. So after our show, which is at 10 o'clock at night live, I would go home to my apartment alone. And actually, you know, he would go out on the town with all of his friends and hangers-on that all wanted to be close to Johnny Cochran. And it was actually a blessing because that is when I started writing the Haley Dean Mysteries. I knew wow. nobody. I didn't know a thing. I started writing those in 1997, and it would be 10 years, I think, or so before the first Haley Dean was ever published. I, I didn't know why I was writing it. I just started writing it. That is a, and I heard you tell on a show where the name Haley Dean came from. Tell everybody that oh, story. That's, a, good story. Where the, that's, that's a, good a great, story. that's a great story. I did not know okay, this story. Now, my, you know, I always start crying when I tell a story. So, after Keith was murdered, I never thought that I would ever marry and have children, which is really, you know, what I wanted. 
And I had always planned to name my daughter Haley after Hallie's comet, you know, once in a lifetime. Uh oh, here it comes. So I never thought I would ever be able to bring myself to marry. In fact, when I would say wedding, I would accidentally say funeral mm. all the time. When I would try to say funeral, I would say wedding. I, I always did it almost every time. And I, I didn't even mean to just the thought of getting married would literally make me feel sick to my stomach. I just couldn't go out on a limb. I just couldn't commit. I would do everything in the world to sabotage a relationship. And I didn't even mean to. I never thought it could ever happen to me. So as I started writing about this former prosecutor turned therapist, I named her after the little girl I knew I would never have. But I didn't have a last name for her. So at that time, my executive producer that I met on Larry King and came to do, take me to HLM with him was Dean Sicoli. So I married the two names, Haley Dean. And I thought that my dream girl would forever live in the pages of a book. But then, as fate would have it, I had a dream. Years later, one night in Manhattan, and I had gone to bed that night, and I had prayed. I, my life was not the life I wanted. I was far away from my family and far away from my home, and I felt alone, and nothing meant anything to me. I lived for the next case and the next crime victim's family, and that night I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw Keith, and he was in a diner in Penn Station, except Penn Station was clean and bright and beautiful, nothing like Penn Station was at the time. And I went into this diner that doesn't exist, and nobody was working there. The whole Penn Station was empty, and there was Keith at the back, sitting at a foretop, and he had aged, Mike. He had gray in his hair, and his hair was pulled back, you know, like Frazier wore his, yep. and um. I went, and he had his fingertips on coffee, black coffee, but he never drank it. And I sat down, and I said, have you met anybody? <laughs> <laughs> and he went, he laughed, just like you were laughing right now. And he said, um, well, I met a lot of people, but I'm still waiting on you. And I just looked at him and he said, but I want you to go on. And I looked at him and he went, go on. And I knew my time was up. And I stood up and I walked out and I looked back at him. And he motioned with his head, go on. And I walked out. I sat straight up after this train and looked at the clock. It was three o'clock. I got up. I made me a pot of coffee. Yes, I was drinking coffee at the time. And I waited for my then longtime love. David Lynch, to wake up. At 7 o'clock sharp, I called him. I said, David, you either move to New York and we get married and start a family or we're breaking up. And I knew he hated New York. I knew it. And he traveled all over the world as an investment banker. But he didn't like New York. 
and I knew he'd probably break up with me that Friday night. I thought, who got past security? I looked out the door, the peephole, and there was David. And I opened the door. I'm going to cry again. And on the floor were all of his bags. <laughs> and he moved to New York. And we got married. And we had the twins. <laughs> That's how that happened. That is a great story, Nancy. And David is so open about his personal life. I never knew that story. So I appreciate you now filling me in on something my brother should have already told me. I did not know all this, Nancy. That is incredible. That is incredible. And and people have asked me, how does David feel about you talking about Keith? Well, really, I don't talk about him very often. But David was with me every step of the way. Mm. He, you know, loved me when I couldn't love anybody back. Mm. And after all that time... And now we have the twins. Mm. That is gr- that is a powerful story. It's so funny when I was researching. Of course, I've known you. You know, for those of full disclosure, for everybody that doesn't know, Nancy's my sister-in-law, and I've known her basically. I feel like my whole life. And as I was researching, I you know there's articles written about this mysterious husband of yours, and why is he not in your family <laughs> pictures? And I'm thinking he's taking the pictures. Well, that's why he's not in the I'm pictures. I'm trying he's to tell everybody them. that. Who do you think is taking the pictures? You look up, you always see a big shadow. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. It is so funny. That is amazing. You know, we we use a phrase all the time at North Star, Nancy, and, and the phrase is God never wastes our time, and He never wastes our experiences. And he uses all of them to create who we are now. And you you look at your life, nothing was ever wasted. Nothing about your journey has been wasted. And as much as that loss devastated you, the rebound of how you came out of it and how many thousands and thousands of lives you've been able to help not just as a prosecutor, but you took that same passion to television. And not just with Johnny's show, but when you went over to HLN, those cases meant everything to you, didn't they? They really, they did, and they do. But I want to be clear on one thing. There were times, even years after Keith's murder, I would feel such a huge grief and depression. Mm -hmm. It would feel like, a person or an evil presence in the room bearing down on me. And that's actually when I became a runner. I had to just get out. I'd be all alone in my apartment in New York, and I would get out and run and run and run and run. So grief and depression is something that we have to battle. And I truly feel that the devil finds a way into your life one way or another, whether it's a depression or whether you feel like, oh, I'm overweight or I'm this or I'm that or I can't make this work or that work. He seizes on that crack and gets his toe in and pretty soon he's got a hold on you. And uh, I really had to battle that. And, you know, a lot of times I think about Christ walking up that hill. I don't even want to put my name in the same sentence of Christ. But when he was walking with that heavy cross on his back, and he fell. And the siren helped him carry his cross. I feel like David helped me carry Mm. my burden. And look where our journey has, Mm. has ended up right now. 
and it's far from over, God willing. Amen. That's so good. That is so good. You know, Nancy. Okay, I'll tell you one more thing. I know yes. you're going to try to shake me off for a lunch call, but it culminated in us having the twins. Mm. And I remember I had come home from New York for a weekend visit and suddenly was going to have an emergency C-section. And David got my pocket Bible. It's just the New Testament. And he read over and over and over for me the same thing. And I would say, say, read it again, read it again, read it again. And finally, I didn't have to tell him. He just kept reading it over and over. And I remember you and Ann coming to the hospital, and I could hardly sit up. I don't really remember anything else except seeing y'all come in the room. But this is what he read me over and over. For I am persuaded that neither death, Mm. nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of Mm. God through Christ, my Lord. Why did that comfort you so much, Nancy? What was it about those words that Paul wrote that you said they were what I needed to hear, not once, but over and over and over? What would you say? Well, I just knew in my heart, and I wanted to hear it over and over, that no matter what happened, whether I did pass away, because the doctor was very clear it was not going well, Mm. that I would be there with Christ that day. Mm. But I just wanted the twins to live, and I wanted to live with them. I, I did not want to look at them from the other side of life. I wanted to be with them so much. And you know, another thing that I love about that is who wrote it. It was Saul of Tarsus, the Christian killer. And it gives me hope because if even a killer like Saul could start over and become Paul, then maybe I have a chance to. Maybe we all have a chance at being what Christ wants us to be and living with him. Do you feel like your faith drives a lot of what you do and why you do it like you do, Nancy? I do. I want to do the right thing. And, oh, you know, I dread the day that the twins read Google and read about mommy, all the things that are said. And they showed me a picture of me the other day. It's me with a pig nose. And I just laughed. I always laugh it off in front of them. But sometimes it is funny and sometimes it does hurt my feelings. Yes. And if you step back and read all the ugly things that are written, uh, oh, it's very hurtful. And I try to ignore it and keep going because if you listen to your critics, Mm. no, no dream ever comes true. you would never be the real you. You'd be at home hiding under the bed for Pete's sake if you listened to all the naysayers. You are the real thing, the the first edition, the uncut version. There's nothing like you. Mm. And if you let people tear you down, then you're not living out God's will. Mm. Oh, I'm sure we can all take a little healthy criticism. 
I don't mean that because I still to this day learn new things about what I need to be doing better. And what I'm talking about are people that are haters, that tear you down, that want to destroy you or hurt you. You know, I, I think about that. And I think about what Christ went through and how he kept going. And when he rode in to everyone exalting him and throwing down palms in front of him, he knew that that Friday night he would be crucified. Mm. That's that's a bitter pill to swallow, but true. That's powerful. What, 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 what's something about Nancy Grace? If they've watched you on your HLN show or they listen to your podcast or they watch oxygen and see your show on oxygen injustice, What's something about Nancy Grace most people would never know? Let's see. No matter where I am, I have either got my dad's shirt with me or his hanky in my pocket or something about my dad with me. I may have um, the handkerchief stuffed down my bra. I don't know where it might be. Um, I always carry my New Testament pocket Bible with me in my backpack everywhere I go. Sometimes it's stuffed down my bra. Let's see. Um, when I buried Keith, the week or two before he passed away, I woke up in the night with a nightmare, and I yanked my cross off my neck. And I said to Keith, I dreamed somebody was pulling you one way and me the other way. And he took my cross out and got it fixed, and I put it back on. And I buried it with him. And it wasn't till years and years and years later that I could bear to wear another necklace. Gosh, what else does nobody know? Um, I work out all the time, walking or jogging, and listen to books on tape. Mm. Um, I can't sing, but I think I can. Um, And I play basketball with John David and try to make recipes with Lucy. And she's a great cook, by the way. And my 89-year-old grandmother, my 89-year-old mother, the children's grandmother, lived with us. And my husband is a saint for putting up with it. That's all I can tell you that people may not know about me. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you from our end, Nancy, you are an amazing aunt. My kids adore you. And you are one of the kindest, most thoughtful people I've ever known. And truly one of our favorite things about you and David are y'all are just selfless. It's never about y'all. And, uh, you know, there's always the persona people know about you as a public person, but the who you are is a lot better than what you've even done. And I want you to know that from our end, you are, you are an amazing person. You are an amazing person. And it's been so neat to watch how God has used you um, all throughout your career and how he's continuing to use you. You you keep reinventing yourself, which I think is the key to life is you, you keep coming out with new versions, but the same passion. It now is on a podcast. It now is on a, 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 a cable channel, Oxygen, which 20 years ago would have gone, what? And now that's the thing. And man, it's, excuse it's, me, you left out Fox Nation. And Fox it's Nation now, that's right. That it's is only it. 99 cents to sign up. <laughs> it, I love it. That's one of my favorite. <laughs> and when I think about you, Nancy, I think of this word, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this word, the word relentless. As a prosecutor, 
you were relentless as a a person who now is churning out books with all the other stuff you've got you're relentless as a mom you're relentless i mean you are going to be the best mom you can be what does that word relentless mean to you well you know people always ask me you know what's your secret what's your advice and i've even told this to the twins one word persevere Mm. because it's not going to go your way all the time. You're lucky if it goes your way 10%, 20% of the time. But the only way, when you don't know what to do, just do something. Just put one foot forward. Just get up and put one foot forward, and that will propel you for the next step. What are you going to do, sit back down? No, you're going to take that next step and the next step and the next step. When you're overwhelmed with so much, just address one thing. I I tell you, Mike, I believed. I investigated my cases myself. I did not rely on just the police. And when I went in front of a jury, I did not need notes, even though I had them, because I knew my case backward and forward because I was prepared and I believed I believed I had the right person. I believed I knew what happened. My advice to anyone is to be yourself. Don't try to be anything other than what you are. And whatever you are, you are what God intended. Don't try to change yourself. Just try to be your best self. That's so good. God, that's great. That's great advice for anything, too. I mean, that's great advice for any industry, anything somebody's going to do. Oh, let me tell you, being in the courthouse is one thing amongst defense attorneys and criminals. The media business is a whole nother (laughs) barrel of snakes. I mean, at least I understood what was happening at the courthouse. I knew when I saw a defense attorney at the other end of the hall, I knew what was coming. In this world, it's a whole nother thing. And, you know, in our world, in the media world, Nobody really, the mainstream media world, nobody likes to talk about Christ. Mm. Mm-mm, no, Mm-mm, you're, you're made fun of and you're, you're often looked down on. That's just the way it is. Um, and that, that's a struggle. And I feel very um, grateful at Oxygen and very grateful at Fox Nation because they've never, ever made me feel different because I'm a Christian. I feel very accepted. That's incredible. You, you, you know, Nancy, there's a, um, there's a verse in the New Testament in Acts. It said, King David served his purpose in his generation, and then he fell asleep. He was done. What I love about that, that's what God said about David. What do you think was the purpose God created Nancy Grace for? What would you say? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think, first of all, to help my children, to, to take, lead them through life and to help them be Christians and help them find a purpose in life, mm-hmm. however that plays out. I think that's my main goal here on earth. I also think that 
I get a chance, an opportunity to speak for people that cannot speak for themselves, whether they are too afraid or beaten down, whether they've been murdered or silenced in some way, and they can't speak out for themselves, I get the chance to do that for them when they feel like they can't speak and they can't be heard. I get to do that. Not only is that a great opportunity, it's a miracle in my life, but it's a very big and heavy burden to to try to do the right thing. So I think that's why I'm here. I just hope I can, I just hope I can do it the right way because my, it would kill me to turn around and look at a victim's family and say, I'm sorry. I, I just couldn't pull it off. I'm sorry. I just mm. couldn't think of it, Mike. And mm. Typically, the victim's family would be sitting on the front row right behind me. Every time I turned away from the jury, they'd be right there looking at me like somehow I was going to make it all okay. Mm. I couldn't do anything for them except get a true verdict. When you close your eyes here, Nancy, we've sat through a lot of funerals together with family members through the years. When you close your eyes here, what you talked about earlier, and you open your eyes in heaven, what do you want the Lord to say to you? What do you want Jesus to say to you the first time your eyes capture this one that you've heard so much about, you've read so much about, you've sung so much about, your mom and daddy told you about, your grandparents told you about, and you meet him for the first time? face-to-face, what do you want him to say to Nancy? I guess I want him to say, you can come in. (laughs) 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 Oh, my goodness. That Even I could be someone like me, and sometimes I, I feel, I don't know how to say it, Mike, I feel. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm just trying to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. I'm seeking. I'm looking. I feel like I do a dishonor even saying it because he's perfect and I'm so not perfect. And I think all of us are just trying. We're looking for him. We're trying to find him. And the thought that he would say, you can come in, you can be part of this, that that's what I want to hear. I want I want his arms to be open that he could love not just the two thieves on either side of him on that that Friday night, but all of us. And I really think, Mike, and sometimes you and I differ on philosophy, I really think Christ's purpose here was to show us how to live. A different way to live, not stumbling in the dark. I mean, when my children have asked me, Mom, what is what is H-E-L-L? I say, what it is, is being away from God. Mm. I can't even imagine a fate being away from just the thought of God, the thought of Christ. Would just That would be hell to me. Absolutely fascinating. You know, when you learn what makes somebody tick, it just helps you understand them so much more. And Nancy's drive 
and her passion to be a victim's advocate and her love for law and people, boy, it comes right out of her story and it's real and it is, uh, it's palatable when you talk to her and the drive and the energy she has is absolutely incredible. Thank you, Nancy, for sharing your story. We're all better for it. That is for sure. Our next episode as we wrap up 2020, you get to meet a very good friend who I think you're going to love. In fact, this podcast exists today because of his role that he played in my life. His name is Brett Pyle. He's a coach of coaches. He's an executive coach who travels the country and can help you think, can help you dream, help you discover in ways very few I've ever met can. I can't wait for you to listen in to the next episode. Well, if you've enjoyed today, please stop. Push pause now. Go to the review area. Leave a review on iTunes. Let others know about if this podcast has been enjoyable to you and added value to your life. Also, leave a rating, and it helps others find their way to you. Also, be willing to share it on social media. We love finding new listeners who don't even know this exists but are looking for how to lead with their faith out in front. Thanks again for joining today, and until we meet again, go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and place that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.